to the Brookwood and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh, Assistant Head of School. I'm here today with Andrea Francois, Lower School Plus Six Director, and David Bose, Upper School Religion Teacher and College Counselor. All of us are from Brookwood. Uh, today we're talking about The Identity Trap by Yasha Monk. Hi, Andrea. Hello, Sherry. Hi, David. Hello. Good to be back. The Identity Trap is a recent book that discusses the rise and predominance of what Monk calls the identity synthesis, the theory and practice of seeing the world primarily through the lens of group identity categories. Um, what did you guys think of the book? I found this book uh, frustrating and difficult, but ultimately rewarding and maybe a little annoying. <laughs> I, I like that response a lot. I mean, also, I'm also thinking about your response to Peeper and your response to Fuldenyi, and I'm seeing a pattern. Uh, but it's different. I mean, at least I mean, Peeper challenged you to change your life in ways, right? Uh, but um, so Monk uh, doesn't. I mean, is, is more distant, right? It's it's less personal in ways. Um, in ways, yes, yes. Um, David, what'd you think? Uh, I wasn't a big fan of, of, of the book. Of yeah. Um, I, don't, I, I see it as a, a, a person you can have a conversation with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I kind of left liking the identity politics people more and Yasha Monk less. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 So Monk um, is a, um, a professor at Hopkins. He um, has done a, a lot of work um, in various publications um, coming from the left and over time, his idea about um, identity politics, as uh, we old people call it, um, and um, various various other ways of getting, we'll talk about this idea some more in a little bit, but what he calls the identity synthesis. Um, he um, came to seeing it as, um, a, I think, a different identifiable pattern than he initially thought. And he came to see it as um, as a harmful way of um, of seeing the world. Hence the title, the identity trap. Uh, the idea being that we should have more universalist values um, as opposed to seeing the world in this kind of identitarian way. Um, what's wrong with that, David? <laughs> I just uh, he doesn't really anchor where the the so called universal values come from. Yeah, and or, it's not very. And maybe I missed this part. He also doesn't really define what they are until the yeah. very end, and he really only gives three. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, then, and then the three he gives, I'm like, I don't know. See, yeah. the three he gives, I am totally on board with. I mean, I don't personally like calling, you know, representative democracy, what does he call it? Self defining collective something or other. Um, <laughs> I'll find it. Yeah, I guess I should say, the, I guess the reason why I don't like them is because it's, they're, if these are the greatest good, that's where I'm like, I'm not a big fan. Like, if these are anchored in something deeper, then I'm all on board. So mm -hmm. actually, so I, this is why I said ultimately that I found this sort of rewarding, is that by reading, mostly, all the way to the end, um... I would agree with you, except that he says that within this universalist framework, opponents of the identity synthesis need to be guided by a clear and consistent compass of their own. 
In my case, this compass consists of liberal values like political equality, individual freedom, and collective self-determination. Yeah, that's the phrase I didn't like. For others, it will be consistent, consist of Christian faith or Marxist convictions of conservative principles or the precepts of Buddhism. So, I mean, it's a grab bag in a way, mm -hmm. but I think he does at that point leave the door open to like this is our groundwork and you're gonna go and do your thing from there but we have to have this part that we can all agree on so that everyone can kind of do their own thing and i'm somewhat okay with that yeah so thinking about um the origin of this idea so the answer according to monk is this um this philosophically liberal response, right? And these universalist ideas or universal ideas um, in order to sort of get to what the identity synthesis is. So the book um, begins by talking about what the, the history of the identity synthesis, what the identity synthesis is, the problem with the identity synthesis, and then he offers positive solutions. Um, so that's kind of the structure of the book. And um, he talks about the main themes of the identity synthesis. And so those are here on page 65. Um, a deep skepticism about objective truth, a form of discourse analysis for explicitly political ends, an embrace of essentialist categories of identity, a proud pessimism about the state of Western societies, a preference for public policies that explicitly make how someone is treated depend on the group to which they belong, an embrace of intersectional logic for political activism, and then finally, a deep-seated skepticism about the ability of members of different identity groups to understand each other. So those are the seven principles that he sees rising and connected to each other, forming this identity synthesis that has come to dominate um, in particular, higher education, but also um, other um, public and private entities. Um, so we have that as sort of a starting place. And um, it seems like it would be appropriate for us to talk about any one of those um, to sort of talk about sort of like how it happened. I mean, I think that in the beginning, in the beginning, there is Foucault. <laughs> and, um, and it has to do, and Foucault has to do with power and fluidity, the idea of no essential self, um, the turning against grand narratives. Um, his, I think, student Lyotard um, ends up also talking against grand narratives. Um, after that, and so you have this kind of postmodern critique, um, critique of Marxism, critique of anything that um, gives people a kind of solid identity um, to begin with. Um, it turns when um, Edward Said um, talks about the importance in his book um, Orientalism, which is from 1978. He talks about the importance of people owning their own story and the necessity of political action. So that takes care of sort of the first part. Um, Gayatri Spivak comes along, and I mean she's famous. Uh, and, and she's famous in English-speaking countries for um, having done the introduction to Derrida's um, deconstruction uh, of gravitology, is what that's called. Um, and she did the introduction to that, but she turns against postmodernism when she um, has when she moves her into her own postcolonialist theory, in which uh, which is based in deconstruction, but goes further. Um, it, that theory in the beginning is against this kind of essentialism in line with the other postmodernists, um, but in the end, she decides that selective essentialism 
um, is the way to go for um, provide for for understanding the the position of particular people um, when you have um, a, a group that's been disenfranchised in one way or another. Um, so that takes us through the postmodernists and poststructuralists. Um, I can stop there, and we can talk about those guys, and then turn the corner to critical race theory. Yeah, I see the strategic essentialism as like a brilliant um, uh, Machiavellian development of Foucault, mm-hmm. right? Like, you're, you're acknowledging there's no such thing as essentialism, right? And essentialism basically just means like things have natures or essences kind of like there's a yeah i mean it's sort of it it gets elided with foundationalism right the idea that there's a place where you can stop and like this is the this is the base for what we're going to go on to talk about yeah or like well i'm I'm thinking like the classic like in gender studies like you're looking for an essentialist definition of what right so it's like well there's no such thing as essentialism except when it's convenient for my political ends right then i will use essentialist arguments Mm-hmm. Which like by brill, I mean I I think it's it's. I see it as kind of like a logical following of what was coming before of like rejection of universal truths, rejection of mm-hmm. you know good. You and see evil. the turn as a following. Well, I, I see it as a development. Like I see like strategic essentialism as a development of like a po- like a politically useful development mm-hmm. of Foucault's mindset. Yeah. Okay. So it's something about power. Yeah. Where like. The, it all becomes about since there is no objective truth, it becomes about who can wield power yeah. according to their desires. Mm-hmm. Strategic essentialism plays a valuable role in wielding power for the achievement of my desires. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. It, was like, it goes back to like um, when Chomsky was like, "That is the most amoral person I've ever met." Right. Well, strategic essentialism is very amoral, mm-hmm. right? Because you're, you're basically saying truth doesn't matter. But I will use language, and I will use people's perception of truth when it suits, when it suits my me. Yeah. political mm-hmm. ends. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if they would necessarily say it that way, but that seems to me like what they're doing. Yeah, and I think that's really helpful, actually, because I um, I saw it as kind of like a um, like we can follow it this far, but we can follow postmodernism so far, but then at some point, sort of, um, it's almost like a, a practical. Um, a practical element. Um, again, as Said goes from um, this kind of post, it becomes critical of postmodernism because it can lead to a kind of political quietism. Mm-hmm. It's, again, you're so far removed from reality uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that what's happening to people doesn't affect you. And so Said comes back and says, "No, we have to pay attention to the world." And so I see Spivak doing something like that as well. Um, I, I like your yeah. response to it, though. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think you also see, like, the two, like if you're in power, then you just, if you're looking at the world this way, right, which, like, they're going to say Michel Foucault because he's, like, the white man, intellectual, all this stuff, has prestige. He doesn't need to worry about the disenfranchised, so mm. he can afford to be, like, mm-hmm. I guess you could say, like, a full-blown postmodernist. Mm-hmm. But those who are, like, in the struggle need to be politically aware and caring because mm-hmm. they cannot exercise their power. And so they have to be, it seems to me like that's kind of like, you have like two strands that like postmodernism can lead kind of in two directions. Yeah. Foucault, kind of like do whatever you want because you can, you know, which maybe is like an oversimplification of him. But like, I think that's just, if you deny universal truths, you end up like, I, I don't know how you end up outside of mm-hmm. do it like, you know, all is permitted. Yeah. And then, but if you're, if you can't 
if you're not permitted to do anything because you lack the power to do things, then it becomes that all is permitted to get the power so you can do Mm -hmm. whatever is permitted. Yeah. It it seems like there's just kind of like a natural, this is just what happens when you deny universal truth. Like you Mm -hmm. just... I mean, it makes sense. Strategic essentialism makes sense to me if you deny universal truths. Yeah. And it also, that helps me to make sense of the turn to Bell and Crenshaw a little bit later. Um, but I've been thinking about critical race theory and um, sort of the, um, the dissatisfaction with the advances of the civil rights movement and the idea that, um, the idea that what's wanted is success, not harmony, and sort of like how how that that turns as well. Anything else about these guys that you guys want to mention? I mean, we can turn, we can go ahead and turn to um, to Bell. Uh, and so thinking about um, critical race theory, which comes to us from law, um, I thought the, the biographical sketch of Bell was interesting. Um, I, I hadn't realized that he had left um, the DOJ to um, then work for the NAACP and sort of like how that that played out and again how he was very close to um, the kind of conventional civil rights movement uh, before he decided he was dissatisfied with those advances and went a different way. I think his biography just made me kind of sad. Like I, it's just it's it's sad to see people. I don't want to say like lose their idealism because I don't believe in idealism. It's terrible. But like I just he did seem to have he did have very noble desires and mm-hmm. he was working towards them and it seems almost like an off the cuff comment derailed him completely in speaking with um the Supreme Court justice whose mm-hmm. name is eluding me at the moment but who said that all that is left is for you guys to clean up. Yeah. And we've, we've done all the hard work of civil rights. You're just going to come through and make it nice. Mm-hmm. And it, it really just seemed like so much of where he turned to hinged on that just moment. Mm. And it, just, it made me really sad. Yeah. And then, of course, he encounters all of, I mean, so he, so his job is to fight to implement Brown versus the Board of Education. And, um, and so he sees that it takes a long time, that black teachers end up displaced, that the white people um, leave the integrated schools. Um, and then you end up with some integrated schools with white teachers and predominantly black students and like a variety of, um, of unintended and I think difficult consequences um, of integration that he then had to grapple with um, and, uh, and then his, his disenchantment with that. It seems like though at that point is when this kind of elision between the moral and the legal kind of starts to take place because from my understanding of Foucault, which is so small, very, very minimal, he's really not talking about the legal or the political. He's talking about the individual and the moral and history. And it seems like starting with Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, we come to this point where there's no separation between 
like an individual and virtue and politics and public policy Mm. and that what is the definition of what is moral is what is legal mm-hmm. and what is law theory saying, which I felt like kept coming up in this book, but he like missed it or doesn't, yeah. isn't bothered by that. Yeah. Which I am very bothered by that. Well, I mean, um, it, it seems like that's what Monk gets back to at the end when he talks mm-hmm. about how rather than seeing um, through groups, um, the Constitution has to do with individuals, mm-hmm. um, and that the um, the idea of getting back to um, to sort of I mean I love actually Monk's point about um, how we we have to have um, freedom of speech, which can be difficult, but we also have freedom of association, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. Like we don't have to you know, we don't have to um, to associate with everybody, mm-hmm. uh, but but they do have to be able to say their piece. And so thinking about like that turn and uh, and the role of the individual um, that seems to be that seems to be important in ways. I think I've taken us away from our, our main idea, though. I'm sorry. Oh no, I. And so Bell ends up disenfran- uh, disenchanted with um, the um, with ideas of desegregation. Um, he sa- he decides that um, desegregation is actually for other reasons um, that. Um, that desegregation was designed to ensure that African-Americans would be willing to fight for their country in any future armed conflict. Um, it allowed for the American South to transition from a rural plantation society to the Sun Belt uh, with all of its potential and profit. And then finally, that it served America's geopolitical interest during the Cold War. So he becomes cynical about the purposes of desegregation and um, ends up deciding that racism is permanent and that all of these moves um, are a cover for racism. Again, it made me sad. I kind of wanted to hug him. <laughs> I did, I just I just felt sad. Like I felt sad that that is the outlook on other people that you come away with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we root our identity in being like created by a loving God to be known and loved. And that's like, you don't feel that out of what came out of his life. You're like, no, right. this didn't have to be this way. But yeah, that's just me. It just, it, he, it just no, made no. me so sad. I mean, like, I, I, think that, I mean, I think what David was saying earlier too about the, you know, where do these universalist ideas come mm-hmm. from? And, um, and this idea, too, of, um, like, we're always in this kind of superficial political struggle. And so the, um, the important dimension of, um, of you know, being, being created by God and being children of God, uh, like that dimension, by taking that dimension away, by taking away the transcendental, the transcendental signifier, uh, by taking away, <laughs> they like, they needed yeah. some Hungarian philosophers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by but by taking away the transcendent, um, everything becomes flat, mm-hmm. and it becomes flat, and it becomes this kind of ugly struggle. And that is, I have a note somewhere in my book that says, "This is your brain on politics," mm-hmm. and just as a reader. Like, my experience reading this book was that you get very dragged into what if your outlook is strictly political and that is what you do all day long. Yeah. And I was like, this is so 
flattening yeah. and very like depressing in its own way and to be able to say that like the political and social aspects of your existence are very important but they are not essential mm -hmm. and if you make them essential then you and kind of end up having to go one of these ways yeah mm -hmm. you you don't get to opt out of right i'm either in this struggle or losing this struggle i mean mm -hmm. at a certain no, point i got very us... lost in who was winning and losing yeah but it helps us to understand like 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 living in that sort of flat world for the amount of time it takes us to read this book mm -hmm. um is um is i think really instructive because it helps us to understand the um the response of um the more contemporary uh, people working with the mm -hmm. identity synthesis like um robin d'angelo and Ibram X. Kendi, uh, those ideas about, you know, either you're anti-racist or you're racist. I mean, mm -hmm. that sort of, those sort of um, bifurcations, those yes. sort of, I mean, it's more than a bifurcation, right? Uh, those, well, I mean, I guess it's, this is bifurcation, right? Uh, but the, um, but these, these kind of, uh, these kinds of ideas that feel so, um, I, w I almost want to say desperate, but they feel so, um, well, the, I mean, certainly the the, the instinct to, to kind of polarize and that mm -hmm. everything is so urgent is um, seems to be a product of the lack of, of a kind of spiritual realm mm -hmm. in the conversation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm also like super aware that we're three white people in a room, actually four if you count Quentin. Hi, Quentin. <laughs> uh, the, um, that we're four white people in a room. Um, talking about you know these issues which resonate all different you know all different kinds of ways, um, but at the same time I think that we have to like the absence of spirituality from this discussion mm -hmm. is an important one. Well, I think it also leads to a deep unhappiness no matter what, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I think that like it, there is such a materialistic vision of humanity here that like. There can only be, I guess, happiness or fulfillment if you have at attained the material, political, or social prestige. Mm -hmm. uh, at least, like the identity synthesis people, right? Say, right. Like, it, that, it, the goal, like, what exactly is the goal? Like, what is his goal when he wants to? Derek Bell's goal when he wants to fight for racial justice, and like, how does he conceive of racial justice? You know, because like there obviously are like, meaning there, like there, is there an end point? Yeah, because there mm -hmm. is social injustice, right? Like that, that, that's sure. pretty clear, um, especially in the '60s, '70s, and what he's dealing with. But then it becomes like, well, I guess that's the deep pessimism, right? <laughs> like right. justice can't mm -hmm. be achieved, right? Uh, and and then it just becomes well, and the real power. Well, the embrace of a positive pessimism, mm -hmm. that the pessimism is actually your strength as opposed to right because you're not naive you're not naive and you don't have the classical civil rights idealism mm -hmm. the embrace of the, like the embrace of the pessimism yeah. does make it entirely about power mm -hmm. and entirely about crushing whoever is perceived as your enemy or crushing like, the like what the unawakened or like the people who aren't socially conscious 
Like they just think they're happy, but they're really oppressed. And once you show them they're like, there's that, there's that too, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, my mom told me this funny story about she and my father were at UCLA in the '60s and '70s, and um, she said that she got invited to one event for like women to like raise their consciousness. And she said she stayed for about five minutes, and she was like, "Nope, still like my husband, going home." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the because well, I'm sorry. No, I, that, then you just like. I guess that yeah clashes with the 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 Christian and really the Judaic because we look in the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the Jews were oppressed a lot, but there was always this sense of, if you live the law, you are blessed by God to know the Lord is more blessed the the pagan nations might have all these riches you might you know be under their yoke but you have the law and that means you're blessed and like but i guess like you know uh derek bell or kimberly crenshaw or you know other like other writers that we're reading about here would say like no no no, you're actually not blessed uh you 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 know like yeah okay god that's fine but you're really not blessed and you need to and so this this sense of like identity in the transcendent that means no matter what state of affairs I find myself in I can find blessing and peace is completely jettisoned and not to say mm-hmm. that and, and what I mean I'm trying to think like what would they say well no like that's just the powerful saying something to keep the oppressed from fixing the injustice right mm-hmm. but then but then you have like well what about when you have the oppressed fixing the injustice using unjust me well well, yeah but i'm thinking like and i guess they would say well the reason why the civil rights movement i guess to them didn't work at all was because you had a bunch of predominantly christian people Mm, mm -hmm. appealing to christianity as as an argument for why you know black people should be treated with the dignity of a human being and Mm -hmm. have equal access and have equal opportunities and not be you know put under the yoke of mm-hmm. threats of violence, intimidation, and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it just seems to me like, <laughs> yeah, I, these people seem deeply unhappy because like, mm-hmm. you can't be happy. Yeah. Like, no I know. What. But I mean, I remember like in graduate school in the mid-90s, um, again, Monk talks about 2010 to 2020 as like the key time mm-hmm. when things were developing in the culture in, in this way and I, I like I remember yeah I remember like I mean when I was in graduate school the first time in the 90s um, and also teaching in the early 2000s like a lot of these ideas were in play but um, but my point is that um, in graduate school I mean I can remember the sort of the resistance to theory as um, as something that was talked about and um, and the idea that um, that the belief in kind of um, universalist ideas um, that that was sort of quaint and mm-hmm. um, and old fashioned and naive and um, and that the the real um, the real way of looking in the world looking at the world was this through this post structuralist lens. And so that, I mean, that, I mean, I think about, you know, Augustine being sort of seduced by the Manichaeans as sort of like, <laughs> we're smarter than other people. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, we've got it. Uh, but that, um, that sort of like cool, smart kind of theory. Uh, but then also just, I mean, the content of it too, that, um, that it's, that the, the universalist idea is dismissed as, um, as quaint or um, naive 
um, and that that's that's the defense that this this, this old idea um, is you know that you're not you're not sufficiently I guess you're not sufficiently awakened to the reality um, that is the um, the the permanence of racism and the um, the the kind of permanence of this this um, this difficulty this conflict. Um, so Crenshaw then comes from Bell and um, gives us information um, about this idea of intersectionality, which I think is important and worth our time. Um, the idea that, um, that these ideas are all connected to each other and that taking one idea um, puts you in a position where you need to accept all the ideas. And so oppression of one group um, is important to the whole. And so Crenshaw gives us that um, in, I mean, we have Crenshaw in the 80s um, starting with these kinds of ideas and, uh, and beginning to develop, um, beginning to develop that. I actually did appreciate this book a lot for his discussion of her um, because my exposure to her is from this mainstream sort of misrepresentation of mm. what she originally said. And when he went through her legal theory argument, I did see what she was saying. I was like, okay, this makes sense. If you have a employment discrimination suit that is specifically about black women, they do not necessarily have the same needs or interests as black men or white women. Mm -hmm. This is possibly legally a separate category. That I actually found really interesting mm -hmm. and was very like if this is if he's given an accurate representation of her legal theory, I thought that was really good to have. Mm -hmm. As opposed to what we've received downstream right, 30 is years later yeah. is this hierarchy of victimization which I which is led to deep unhappiness and I think Monk shows is incredibly detrimental to any sort of human flourishing in any way so I really appreciated his discussion of her mm -hmm. Even if I don't agree with her, yeah. which I may or may not. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Right. And I just used my identity. <laughs> I did exactly what he said we're not supposed to do. <laughs> That's funny. Um, the, um, the move then from intersectionality to standpoint theory is like the next twist. And so you've got Donna, Donna Haraway... Uh, in the 80s writing about um, I mean sort of I mean the idea is that if you belong to the group you're able to, to talk about it mm -hmm. um, and it's, so it's it's a belief in the profound incommensurability of human experience um, and um, it's sort of like how that how that also plays um, so that one has a constellation of identities and um, and that other people um, couldn't possibly understand yeah, it, it's it's crazy to me because I have like, I guess I've I've seen a lot of these ideas. Here, um, I, I don't know if you would say developments or corruptions. Like I think like the victim hierarchy. Is that a development of 
Kimberly Crenshaw's legal theory as applied to the world, or is it a corruption? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Could go either way, I guess. Um, but it's what I, we have now. It, yeah, it is what. No matter whether it is or not, yeah. this is what we have. Um, but uh, like, but it, it seems to me like we we always stress empathy. But does someone who think of these incommensurable experience, which is like true, right? Like I will never know what it is like to be anyone but me. Right. Mm-hmm. But does that not mean I cannot try to come to understand or perceive? or share in your experience in right. a limited like is that not it seems to me like it's all or nothing like there's no mm-hmm. participation mm-hmm. there's no way to participate in another's experience or being or or life which is again like leads to i mean if that's your view of the human person oh my goodness mm-hmm. you know i mean if, if we're if we're really and it seems like i guess the furthest on the identity is everything synthesis side I think if you pushed them on it do you think they would deny empathy like deny that empathy is like a real experience I think so because I think if you get very far into the weeds attempting to be what we would call empathetic in an understanding of somebody else's experience amounts to trying to steal somebody else's experience you get to I think you get to the end and if you're even trying to share or understand, what you're really trying to do is to take it and make it about you. To appropriate. And to appropriate. Um, So I think if you... I think empathy loses its meaning if you cannot have meaningful exchange Mm -hmm. of human experiences Mm -hmm. yeah and i think people who have more traditional a more traditional christian background we go back to i think it is thomas aquinas and i'm probably going to get this wrong you're giving me the side eye um that we in the same way that like we can never know god as god knows himself we actually can't know ourselves as God knows us. Mm. So like we are a mystery even to ourselves. And if we start from there, we are more comfortable with you are a mystery, but there is something that we can share. Right. There can be some knowledge. It is always incomplete. And Mm -hmm. our knowledge, all of our knowledge is incomplete. And this identity synthesis is trying to make seems to be trying to make knowledge complete and closed yeah that there is no new discovery of another or of anything in the world Mm -hmm. yeah yeah which which seems to me like um it seems to me like it actually is a logical development of kind of two strands of the post the post christian west of like um i'm thinking like the view of like man is innately evil right and so we have law to keep man from killing each other right like social contract idea like you know there's in this and so why i say that is because oh where am i going with this it seems like you have this sense of the human person as innate like all right let me walk through this you have scientific empiricism 
which says like only the empirical is true, only the empirically verifiable is true, or can be known with any kind of degree of certitude. Well, if the, and I think like a lot of people were raised on this way of thinking, mm-hmm. and so if that's true, then it like part, participated knowledge is impossible, mm-hmm. right? The, in, the, in the classical tradition, especially going back to like Aristotle, participated knowledge, right? Like sharing in like what the teacher tells me, like knowing something is true because another has witnessed to it mm-hmm. is like a completely legitimate thing, you know? And, and in a sense, I really do take in their knowledge. Like right. I know mm-hmm. through them, like I'm mm-hmm. sharing in their kind of act of knowing. Yeah. But that, but so if you have like this view of like each other as threats to each other, well, mm-hmm. there's like the power mm-hmm. dynamic. Um, scientific empiricism is the only me- means of certitude. Yeah. Well, Although these, um, it, it seems like the the that there's the problem of science as a grand narrative that's been knocked down. So there's. But, yeah, well, yeah. I think, but it becomes it becomes as a result, right? Because if only the empirically verifiable is true, oh, like it, it reaches okay. a point so, where the only thing that is true is something mm, I something I can observe. And like, well, the only thing I can have certitude in is what's come from within me. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like the scientific, when the scientific empiricist method started, it was, I think, still kind of hanging on to that traditional sense of like testimonial knowledge mm-hmm. and belief and stuff like that. But yeah. as people got pushed further and further and further into skepticism, and further and further and further down the road, and like you know, like it seems like this identity theory mm-hmm. is kind of this natural like behemoth hydra beast of like all these problems uh of like the post-christian west right so that's something else that i don't understand is like why monk doesn't really talk about when he talks about the cultural aspects that lead to the proliferation of the identity synthesis he doesn't really talk about changes in religious practice and i was sort of surprised by that it seems like that's something that's been so documented and Mm -hmm. is um and is available and seems to be part of this it must be that he's making like he might be making an audience calculation for this Mm -hmm. book and and doesn't want to talk about it Um, Mm -hmm. but it seems like that's a huge thing that um that's been important go ahead no i i agree with you i had a lot of trouble understanding as he understood who his audience is Mm -hmm. and i think I found his that there was basically no discussion of changes in religious attitude over mm-hmm. even over the last 20 years, yeah. but let alone over the last 100. And I found it very strange that Barack Obama comes up like once mm-hmm. and that that he picks 2010 as mm-hmm. this very specific point in time when things changed. Mm-hmm. Um I found those two things very strange, and it seems like he's trying to appeal to what he perceives as a broad audience of discontented liberals. Mm-hmm. Who do... I think I think that is his audience because that's yeah. what he is. Um, yeah, and so I think, and he's he's a philosophical liberal, but he's also a political liberal, and yeah. I think that that's um, I think that's his audience. I think that he's so I think that he's he that, you know Braver Angels has a certain group covered, mm-hmm. uh, Heterodox Academy has a certain group covered, um, and he's um, he's interested in like shaving off the next the next group to kind of join, and that would be people who are um, who are in ways primarily um, secular, primarily materialist, mm-hmm. um, who um, 
can be persuaded by some of these arguments. I think it's interesting, mm-hmm. too, that he spends a portion of the book talking about like how to persuade other people mm-hmm. um, that the identity synthesis is wrong. And mm-hmm. I found that this maybe the strongest part of this book, mm-hmm. when he actually starts talking about what do you do in the world, that was much stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, or it was just maybe a relief. From, like, everything's yeah. going wrong. No, I felt <laughs> like, like that this book kind of dips in like, the middle. It, it's kind of, I, I felt like it was strong in the beginning and strong in the end, but I, I felt I felt a bit of a parabola. I understand why he used five examples at, with a chapter each for, mm-hmm. like, showing how the identi- identity synthesis plays out mm-hmm. and why it's wrong and what you should be doing instead. But at that point, it felt like a lot. Yeah. You're like, okay. It's everywhere. It's everything. Mm-hmm. It's always bad. Please stop yeah, talking. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, I mean, his, I mean, certainly he's writing for an intelligent general audience. Um, but it's, um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I wonder, too, mm-hmm. about the length of the book. And the, um, and, and I found it very readable, but I, um, but I, I wondered about that. I mean, certainly having at the end of each chapter key takeaways. That was great. Like, that's helpful that um, in terms of like helping also to foreground certain aspects of mm-hmm. his argument. He's able to go more into the weeds if he at the end gets to like foreground the main components of his argument. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think that, um, but it, I think it is interesting about like his audience and um, in the, the lack of discussion of, again, those cultural shifts having to do with the drop-off of religious practice and um, the importance when you're talking about these universalist values of, as, as David has said, like where those values come from and, um, and sort of like how, um, like how, I mean, in order for a kind of universalist um, philosophy to... Um, or practice to be um, to, to work you need the whole thing um, and so mm-hmm. that in, yeah. in that way his argument seems to be limited um, and as a philosopher like he's a philosopher I, as a philosopher I'm surprised that he's um, that he was willing to do that mm-hmm. I mean I think he must be doing it for a pragmatic purpose I thought he was is he is he a like I thought he was his area of research was internet like political affairs or international affairs I think of him I think of him yeah. as um, like as being interested in philosophy and politics okay. mm-hmm. uh, so I mean I'm not sure what his credential is yeah, yeah. okay well because then you also like what type of philosopher is he right um, yeah okay yeah and, and and this is this is kind of why I don't know if like, again like why is and I, I guess his kind of answer seems to be like why is liberal democracy or um, representative you know democracies constitutional republic whatever you want to call mm-hmm. you know this political system why is it the best and it seems to, like it seems like his, his argument is well you wouldn't want to live somewhere else he does say that you know yeah. um, and, and, and like that's short changing it but it's also like what is it that makes, based on like an appeal to virtue, what is it that makes the liberal, like the, the mm. system, this system of government, the best? Mm-hmm. And it seems like I don't know. If it's he's true. His at argument it. was very outcome based. 
I mean, it's very about yeah. very yeah. much about prosperity and, 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 and personal happiness, and you know, which hey, I'm all for. Love prosperity and personal yeah. happiness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not knocking it, but we also see something like, deeper. Some and, days. And, <laughs> and, and I'm wondering if if you're not like if you're more liberal leaning, more politically liberal, more kind of socially liberal, whatever. You know, you kind of have these ideas of like certain human acts as being good and certain human acts as being bad and all this stuff. And then he does get into transgenderism, and it it just becomes like. Why does this lead? Like, what happens when all these things conflict? In, mm, in, mm-hmm. like, what is our what is our common? Where do you essentialize? Idea? Well, yeah. <laughs> like, what what is? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, like, well, yeah. what is what, what is the, the essence of the yeah. thing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what what's the common good that we're all seeking to to have in common? Like, so I, I, I'm just, I don't know if I would be persuaded of of this if I was being tempted to. Adopt identity synthesis politics. Mm. Mm-hmm. I I think if you were on the fence mm-hmm. and you were, I mean, making a very broad, like, what way am I going to take my life today? Mm-hmm. I think if you read this, you would stop and seize the contradictions because mm-hmm. I think he does a good job of pulling out these things are contradictory. You can't have them all together. Mm-hmm. I think Douglas Murray did a better job in The Madness of Crowds in fewer pages. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think his argument is just stronger. I think okay, he yeah. is more willing to say these are not compatible theories in practice or in theory because their logic doesn't hold. Mm-hmm. And therefore we need to get away from this. Mm-hmm. I, he, Mr. Monk spends a lot of time doing what he tells people not to do at the end of qualifying everything he says. Mm-hmm. There is injustice. This is real. These people are not making it up. And at a certain point, you're like, well, do you believe this or not? Mm-hmm. Where are we mm-hmm. going from here? Oh, I, I felt it was just sort of like a... Um, more like a, a sort of common sense, like, of course there's, you know, of course there's a legitimacy to the ideas that gave rise to this problematic thing. I mean, of course there's a problem there. I think just from maybe just from an aesthetic point of view, he just mm. said it too much. Okay, that's, that's it, and he was a little too vague about. I found the problem with his argument mostly to be that he is very broad brush about some things that I needed more detail about. Mm -hmm. And he would have had a much stronger argument that would persuade people who were already down the road. This is where I started. Mm -hmm. I, but I think if you were kind of looking, looking for new philosophy and thought Mm -hmm. I might try that one, and you read this, you would be like, nah, I might not try that one. Mm, this does yeah. not seem, these do not seem like happy, fulfilled people. Yeah. And I maybe don't want to be this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's why I see this as like a, a like something to have a conversation with. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, like, because like I, I walk away with this was like more questions for someone who is more left leaning. 
mm-hmm. but oh. he wants to reject the identity. identity. I have I've, so many yeah. questions. I want to go to his office and be like, <laughs> explain your book to me. <laughs> like, I would like to know what is going on here. We should call him like, up and have him on the podcast. I he would do please it. do. Yeah. Like, yeah. I have I have so many questions. Yes. Yeah. Um, and my ultimate question is maybe what he comes down to. And, and those who don't end up in the most prestigious or lucrative positions also get to lead a good life. And I just want to, like, look at him and be like, are you saying the identity synthesis comes down to if you do not end up in the most elite position, you do not have a good life? Because mm-hmm. that is tragic. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I could see that. I mean, is that the ultimate distillation of this race to power? Yeah, and it's true. Yeah, because it is a race to power. Yeah, right. Like if you're limited to the the realm of temporal power, Mm -hmm. then yeah, then that's then that's what's at stake. Like that makes me so sad. Yeah. Because there are so many good things in life that have Mm -hmm. nothing to do with any power. Yeah. And have nothing to do with any of your social standing in life. Right. Yeah. And that an entire section of people in the world are missing that. Oh, that's like yeah. so upsetting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a sort of weird sideways question. Um, I, I wonder if you all had noticed um, the, the book's use of the pandemic um, mm-hmm. in different ways. I mean, I noticed that um, that he talked about um, the COVID vaccine example mm-hmm. um, and how that was a kind of um, move of um, the um, of kind of it showed the um, the dominance of the identity synthesis. So the idea is that when the COVID vaccines became available um, in other countries. Um, older people were prioritized because they were more at risk and more older people would die. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United States, the move was toward essential workers, which was a younger and more um, ethnically diverse um, group. And as a result, more older people died in the United States. So um, Monk uses this example to talk about the um, kind of the, the dominance of, um, of the identity synthesis. Um, I don't know if you had any sort of response to that. I felt I, I had some feelings, um, oh. but, which, which, but I, I'm interested in yours. And I also um, noted um, the language of the pandemic other places in the book. Um, but I don't know if you had any thoughts about that example. I don't, I mean, I, there were obviously, like you could see in the policies, some places did say we want to prioritize people of color or stuff like that. Yeah. But I think the move to prioritize so, like, so, like essential workers was more a demonstration of the power of unions and mm. um public perception, public perception of money people's, you yeah. know versus like necessarily um right because like i remember what was it that which teachers union was it was it in chicago Illinois? yeah chicago where they're like we will not go back to work until we're vaccinated and then they use that to get vaccinated and they're like we're not going back to work <laughs> like yeah to me like that like now i think it was california though did both like very openly say we are prioritizing people of color there were mm-hmm. a couple, a couple. Yeah. california did i feel like washington dc like the city did mm-hmm. but i might be wrong about that um yeah there were a couple places that did and then unfortunately ran into historical vaccine resistance yeah so there was that added 
layer mm-hmm. of of the identity synthesis. Right. There right. was then this next step of of convincing hesitant people. Right. We're from the government and we're here to help. <laughs> like, which was a mess. Right. It was an absolute mess. And, yeah. you know, and you could have just jabbed all the seniors. Like, yeah. it's... But, yeah. And also the way they, they treat... Yeah, well, that, this is a whole other conversation. But, yeah, I, I, did, I did think, like... But I also wonder if, like, the identity, identity synthesis people would, would say, right, like... Um, can't make an omelet if you don't crack a few eggs. Like, I wonder if they would be like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, more people died, but we made our point, right? Like, because I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, like when you're talking about like ethical theories and you don't know what first principles people use, right? I would not be surprised if some people, not all people who are subscribed to identity synthesis, but some would say, mm-hmm. well, the ends justify the means. You know, and especially if they were really committed. Um, so a bunch of old racist white people die. Mm. You know, like that's yeah, what I don't know. To do I, to I I wouldn't presume justice. to. Um, I I need some evidence for that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, well, but I but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It just it just wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Like if you deny universal truths mm-hmm. and your your goal is something else, it wouldn't surprise me if some some people who subscribe to identity synthesis would say, no, this is actually a win. Mm. Uh, you know, because mm-hmm. like the political goal was achieved. So in, in their mind, right? And, and so uh, I think like for a lot of people, it would be like, wow, this is a real shot against identity synthesis. But mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that everyone would be persuaded. Hmm. Yeah. Based on, because if, if all you see is identity groups and you see a group that you have been trained to view as the enemy, mm-hmm. Being on, like you know, mm-hmm. now I think if you could persuade them that like more black people died or more people of color died or more people in this group that they privilege died, then you might be able to persuade them that like see, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I, I found his use of the I'm trying to remember what it's called like the the rhetoric of rhetoric of wartime. It's from World War One. Mm. When the use of militaristic language became the language of the federal government mm-hmm. and how it's not addressing poverty, it's the war on poverty. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I found his use of that consistent through the book and unbelievably troubling. The military language or the pandemic language? Well, I fa- it seemed so much more pronounced in the pandemic language. Uh-huh. But it was also, I it was. It seemed to be throughout it, and I circled yeah. like a I mean, lot I of it. I mean, I think it has to do with like how elemental healthcare is, and how I mean, like how scary um, the, you know, the the deprivation of something that you, some medicine that you need would be right. And so, I mean, I, I noted it in um, when he talks about how the identity synthesis escapes from academe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the the virus got out of the lab. Yes. you know. I mean, there's. I mean, so there's. But like, we don't know how. But there's. But I think that that, that those like that turn of phrase. Um, also, I mean, it's it's definitely like a virus kind of mm-hmm. language, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think he does it to. Um, in, in order to um, to to heighten our sense of um, what's um, sort of the urgency of of these ideas. Yes, and I if you are 
impassioned and and these are very important things to talk about and if they are in his case essentially oh there's that word again um (laughs) what you've pursued in your professional life and career then yes they have an emotional resonance to you that is a little bit different I found it very Mm off-putting when I was like again who's your audience like who are you trying to reach did you find what else did you find um of that kind of language oh uh I um would be protected from the threat posed by members from dominant groups was like he used that phrase like quite a lot Mm -hmm. and the word threat is very vague Mm -hmm. and very overarching yeah and he put it all over the place Mm -hmm. it feels threatening Mm-hmm. without being able to know why. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you're not clear about what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about it kind of in in relation to myself, um, because that's what I do, and what we all do, mm-hmm. as the book proves. <laughs> um, but that, you know, if your audience is someone like me, who is a conservative, who is a religious person, who is in no way interested in an, any more Trump in any way. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy saying that. Um, no more. That language isn't, isn't persuasive mm-hmm. because it's vague. Mm-hmm. If your audience is more, you know, maybe people he hangs out with, then it has the emotional impact that he wants. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I was glad um, that I read the book and that it, um, I, like, I enjoyed the the breakdown of the origins of the identity synthesis and the different pieces of it. And now when oh, yeah. I'm listening and reading other things, I'm picking up um, bits and pieces um, in the language of other people. Possibly they've also read this book and that it's, <laughs> we've created a system here. Uh, but, um, but, of oppression? Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that like hearing the, um, the, the different bits of language picked up um, helps me to understand kind of like how the, identi- the identity synthesis coheres and like where it's messy and, um, and also like how how different ideas from the outside relate to it mm-hmm. uh, so it's given me kind of a um, a good basis of um, of understanding because um, i think he is fair um like i don't know how fair he is to Foucault and leotard but um i think he is fair to saeed and spivak whose work i know and um and then i trust that he's got you know bell and crenshaw in a way that's reasonably um rogerian with mm-hmm. regard to their um their ideas um, and then decides that they're wrong. So I feel like it was very even-handed, and, um, and I found it helpful in that way. Um, it, it, it was a nice um, counterpoint to a lot of the more, um, I guess, polarizing um, elements that we encounter mm-hmm. um, as we as we um, head into twenty twenty four. Well, the election. that yes, but as we as we consume media, you yeah. know, as we as we hear the news. Um, so thinking about those kinds of things. No, I thought there was a really, I ended up feeling there, there was a lot more value 
than the experience of reading it. Mm, like, I mm. found that very... I like found so many things. It's something you like to have done. It's like something <laughs> I like to have done. Like, sometimes, like, going to church on Sunday. Um, David's, like, not going to talk to me ever again. Um, but I did find hilarious his part at the end where he's talking about um, integration and bringing new people into new places and he basically lays out the like four fundamentals of basic classroom management oh nice (laughs) and i was i just laughed a lot i was like oh my gosh just talk to an elementary school teacher of course that's how you get kids to play nice right right that's hilarious this isn't quite rocket science dude no that's i mean and and i think that his i mean his goal is to get different kinds of people Mm -hmm. together talking about you know various ideas Mm -hmm. and um and that he thinks that um and and i agree that um that groups are better when they're heterogeneous Mm -hmm. um and um and so I, i think that that's you know so his his discussion of you know the sort of the ideas that mesh with um, the school world, I think mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. David, do you want the last word? Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> of course you. I will just it, it goes. <sighs> yeah. I I let me be clear, David. I don't want to live like these right, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm much more happy now yeah. than I was before about not being an entirely <laughs> political person um, and having a life and hobbies yeah. and goals and a family and yeah. traditions and all the things that make life worth living. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be these people. I'm just kind of I, like seeing these two, like if these two are, I don't know, it, like, yes, heterogeneous groups are great, but what is the common unifier? Like what is, oh, and, yeah, and, yeah, and that yeah. I think is the difficulty where I just, I don't, know what people would point to as the common unifier that enables it there to be a group Mm -hmm. instead of just a collection of individuals and And citizenship isn't adequate no right the 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 ideal of the united states of america is just like but is the constitution of the united states of america and adherence to that at least a starting place i think i think that can help I think that can help us get to that deeper fun, like because you have to like, I don't know, because you have to you, you read the Constitution and the question is, is do you read the Constitution? Like, what is your vision of humanity? What is your vision of the human? Yes. Yeah. But all relationships start yeah. somewhere. And interestingly, in reading this book, I thought a lot about the social aspects of small talk. Mm-hmm. which as a society we are terrible at mm-hmm. as we have embraced the introvert we've gotten yeah. worse <laughs> as like all of these things that have yeah. made us jump to very big topics mm-hmm. far too early right mm-hmm. with people you don't know yeah and that it's almost as if he is making an argument for like political small talk Mm-hmm. like yeah. start here let's find and i found his yeah. lack of definition of what universalist values were incredibly frustrating yeah but if you maybe just start with his three mm-hmm. that's where you start and you may get more and i i completely yeah. agree with you you need a metaphysical foundation for all the things that you do in your life yeah 
But in order to interact with your neighbors, Mm -hmm. you need some fence Mm -hmm. and some way of talking over that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess, yeah, I just see this as it's a good way to think about questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. More than solutions, but it's, it's a good way to think about mm-hmm. how to engage in. Because the takeaway for me is like, okay, this is like a dialogue starter. Mm-hmm. Uh, to basically say, like, okay, what's like, what's next? Like, yeah. what, like mm-hmm. what what do you build on? What and do you I, I do with? think that is part of the intention. What do you do? Yeah, yeah, I think that I mean, because I mean, again, with the the tips for persuading others, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that I think that it yeah. is a um, a dialogue starter in ways. We need to finish up, or um, Rich is going to kill us. Thank you for <laughs> listening to the Life of the Mind podcast from Brookwood and Avalon Schools. I'm Sherry Walsh here in the Identity Trap episode with Andrea Francois and David Bose. Our producer is Quentin Walsh. Our theme music is Fabian Tell. Views expressed are the participants' own. Mm-hmm.